We're finally in Luke 19. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 10 from lesson number 118 in your book. Zacchaeus, a short man, grows. Now, the only gospel writer to give us this great conversion story of a once greedy little Jewish tax collector, in fact, the chief tax collector of the city of Jericho at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, The only one to give us this account was the compassionate Greek physician, Luke. Now, I would have thought that the Holy Spirit would have also included, or at least included, Matthew. Would have inspired Matthew to include this account of Zacchaeus. And why would I say that? Right, because Matthew himself had formerly been a tax collector. He was uh, known as Levi, the tax collector. Or maybe that Mark would have been inspired by the Holy Spirit to um, include this account because Mark received his information about Christ's life from Peter. And Peter, if anyone knew about messing up his life, as Zacchaeus had done, Peter certainly could identify with that. And, um, and yet it wasn't Mark who was chosen, nor was it Matthew. And I don't know, I got to thinking, well, maybe because Matthew wrote primarily with Jewish readers in mind and Mark wrote primarily with Roman readers in mind, and maybe that would be too much of a stumbling block uh, to include in an account about a man who got wickedly wealthy, a Jewish man who got wickedly wealthy working for the Romans by robbing his own people. But whatever the reason, the Holy Spirit only inspired one of the synoptic gospel writers to include this account of Zacchaeus, and he chose a very compassionate man. You know, even John, the other gospel writer, was not so initially compassionate, was he? He didn't want to include a man in their little group who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus because he was so sectarian. He said, well, you know, we, we rebuked him for doing that. And then he's the one who wanted to call down lightning from heaven on all those people in that Samaritan village. And last time we saw him, or a couple times ago, we saw him wanting to have one of the best seats in the house next to the Lord. So initially, John wasn't very compassionate. But Luke was. It's a good thing for a doctor to be compassionate, isn't it? Doesn't it make all the difference in the world to have a doctor with good bedside manner? (laughs) Yes, it does. And they don't all have that, but Luke did. He would have taken care of many patients over the years, and he would understand that for a man to be very small in his stature could be, could be, if he allowed it to be, his size could be just one more kind of a physical disablement. Yes, Bartimaeus had been blind, and he could not see Jesus, although he wanted to, but Zacchaeus was too short. He was quite short of stature, and he too could not see Jesus, although he wanted to. Fortunately, we find that with both of these men, they had a good quality characteristic. They were both very persistent men, and they were persistent to not only overcome their physical disadvantages, for one, it was his blindness, and how did he overcome that? with his mouth, (laughs) by crying out, becoming obnoxious in his crazo, his crying out. And the other one overcame his physical advantage, disadvantage of shortness, by not crying out, but climbing up. (laughs) 
and, and they, so they both overcame their physical disadvantages and they also both were persistent to overcome another hindrance to them getting to see Jesus and that was the crowds. In both of these situations, it was the crowds that tried to hinder them from getting to the Lord Jesus. Well, the story of Zacchaeus illustrates to us the Lord's words over in Luke 18, verses 24 to 27, where he, remember, had said how discolos, how impossible it is for one who trusts in riches to enter into the kingdom of heaven, that it is actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, and yet all things are possible with God. Zacchaeus, you see, was a man who had determined at one point in his time to put his trust in riches, but he had the added wickedness in that he had obtained those riches by dishonesty at the expense of his own people, the Jewish people. However, because God is merciful and because all things are possible with God, Zacchaeus, so to speak, did pass through the eye of a needle into the kingdom of heaven. So this account of the salvation of a tax collector, a chief tax collector of the cursed city of Jericho, this particular salvation account, along with other accounts, salvation accounts that we have in Scripture, such as that of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Could you believe that that wicked man could get saved? Well, he did. And other accounts uh, such as Naaman, the proud Syrian general who had leprosy. And uh, the account of Rahab, the harlot, and the adulterous Samaritan woman who met Jesus out at Jacob's well. She had had five husbands and was living with the sixth man. Amazing that she got saved, but she did. And other accounts such as um, the account of Nicodemus, the Pharisee. It's, these, are, these are accounts that are given to us in the Scripture. These are true stories. If we could call these people from heaven and have them stand before us, they, they would be giving us their testimonies. These are their testimonies, how they came to know Christ and have eternal life. But they are given to us in the Scripture so as to encourage us to know that even those who appear to be the most difficult cases to reach with the good news of salvation... Publican types, like Matthew, who was Levi, and Zacchaeus. Proud types, like Nebuchadnezzar and Naaman, the general. Promiscuous types, like Rahab the harlot, and that other woman who uh, washed the Lord's feet with her tears and her hair. And Pharisaic types, like Nicodemus, and who else? What other famous Pharisee came to know the Lord Jesus? Paul. Name was Saul to begin with. He actually was a murderer of Christians. So, you know, publican types, proud types, promiscuous types, Pharisaic types can inwardly... Now, we can't see the heart. We would look at them and say, oh, they're too hard, Shell. There's no way they can be reached. But inwardly, they can be the most ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't read a book by its cover. Or, how does it go? Can't we judge a book. <laughs> no, you can't read the book, but you have to open up. <laughs> have to read the pages. But you can't judge a book by the cover. Then that's because we're not omniscient. We, we can't see the heart. 
like the Lord can. And an example of, of that, that he can see the heart, is surely given to us in this account of the salvation of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector of a very cursed city, the city of Jericho. Also, this account of Zacchaeus further demonstrates the truth of the Lord's words. This is over in Mark 10:45, that the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Those were, by the way, his last words spoken, his last recorded words spoken before he came to Jericho. Just look at it. Mark 10, 45. Those are the last things he, the words he said, and then he arrived in Jericho, and uh, outside of Jericho, he healed Bartimaeus. And then we also have his last words in today's lesson, his last recorded words before he left the area of Jericho, and they are the words... For the Son of Man, now that's his favorite term for himself, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Isn't that interesting? Going into Jericho, his, his last words were, the Son of Man came to minister and not to be ministered unto. And then his last words leaving the city of Jericho were that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus are examples of both of those truths. Even though the Lord was on his way to his own crucifixion, which he knew would take place in just a matter of days, and even though if he had been like you and I, he could have so easily passed by on the other side in the cases of both Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus, as did, remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Who passed by? The one in need. The Levite and the priest. Jesus could have passed by like the Levite in the, and the priest did in that parable, but he did not. Of course he did. In truth, because Jericho, and we discussed this last time, because Jericho was a city highly populated by many Levites and priests, they would live in Jericho and they would travel over to nearby Jerusalem when they would have to serve in the temple several times a year, but most of the year they would live in Jericho. So because this city was populated by a lot of Levites and priests, we could literally correctly say that many of those Levites and priests had literally passed by on the other side of both Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus with cold hearts. They'd see them there. You know, they'd see Bartimaeus out on the side of the road with his blind companion friend and pass by cold-heartedly on the other side. And they'd see Zacchaeus, that wicked man, sitting in his tax collection booth at the city gate, and they would pass by him on the other side and never stop to help either one of them. The Lord Jesus himself was about to step onto that very treacherous road that was included in the parable, the road that led from Jericho to Jerusalem. And that road really for him would take him straight to the cross. And it was a road for him that would be full of hate mongers and betrayers and scorners and robbers and liars and murderers. And yet he did stop along the way to compassionately minister to those who were hurting and needy and those who were dying in their sins. Why did he do that? Why didn't he just pass? He's on his way. He's got a mission. He's flint-like to get that mission accomplished. And yet, on his way, he compassionately stops.
just along the way to touch the lives of Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus. Why did he do that instead of passing by? Well, because he is the Good Samaritan, isn't he? He is the Good Samaritan personified. So let's turn now to look at this account of the Lord's last personal encounter before he arrived in the area of Jerusalem to begin the final week of his life. We have one more lesson, which will be, Lord willing, next week, and it's a parable, and then we begin the Passion Week. Can you believe that? We're getting close, but not really. (laughs) All right, Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans. And he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus who he was and could not for the press because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he, Jesus, was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, who do you think that they are? Probably, probably the ubiquitous Pharisees, scribes, Levites, priests, that when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. As we discussed last time on Bartimaeus, the Jericho here that Luke tells us in verse 1 that Jesus entered and passed through at this point in his life right before the Passion Week was not the ancient Jericho whose walls came crashing down back in the days of uh, Joshua and Caleb and Rahab. Rather, it was a rebuilt Jericho located just one mile from that ancient Jericho. And we talked about the fact that it was a tropical paradise, only four miles west of the Jordan River, six miles north of the Dead Sea, the richest part of the country agriculturally. It was full of palm trees and balsam plantations, cypress flowers, roses, and uh, sycamore trees. It was a place selected by many wealthy Jewish people for their winter homes and also uh, for their uh, 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 stately homes. So, uh, some live there just in the winter, some live there all year long. Now the revenues, this is just a little bit of trivia that you can tuck away in your trivia box, but the revenues of uh, Jericho's balsam plantations were once given as an imperial gift by Mark Anthony to his beloved Cleopatra. Interesting. Well, the rebuilt Jericho, which was rebuilt under the reign of Herod the Great, the wicked man who tried to kill baby Jesus or the infant Jesus, um, and he had a, uh, a palace there, and he died there. Well, his son Archelaus, was, who was almost as wicked as he was, he also had chosen Jericho to build a uh, palace. But it was, it was absolutely 
absolutely a beautiful and a very productive agricultural center, but it was also a great commercial center. And I didn't mention this last time, I'm not sure if it was in your books, but it also had a significant Roman military presence there. So there were a lot of Roman soldiers who, who lived in that area of Jericho. And Jericho was located on the crossroads of two significant caravan routes. One ran north and south from Damascus and Syria down to Arabia, and the other caravan route went from Perea all the way over to Egypt, and Jericho was at the very center. And we did say that it was the last stop city for uh, pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem who were coming from the north and the east. Jericho would be the last stop, and then they'd get on that treacherous road and go 17 miles or so over to Jerusalem. Well, for all of these reasons, Jericho had become the main Judean station for the collection of taxes and customs on both native produce, the export trade, and also um, the import trade. And so it was a main tax Station. So not only was the city populated by a lot of very wealthy people, a lot of wealthy Jewish people, and a lot of Roman soldiers, and a lot of travelers and vacationers, and a lot of um, Levites and priests and Pharisees and scribes, but also Jericho housed a lot of tax collectors. Tax collectors. Now, although it was a very striking city outwardly, and we talked about how Jericho even smelled good. The name means smell. It smelled good because of the balsam groves and the roses. Yet, Jericho was under a divine curse. God had cursed the city long ago, back in Joshua 6, uh, verse 17. It was a corrupt city, therefore. It was still under the curse. And perhaps no individual exemplified more the fact that the city was under a curse than the city's chief tax collector. Now, to be a chief, I mean, that there were a lot of tax collectors, but he was the chief. You know, he had the most feathers on his cap. He was the top chief. <laughs> I mean, the hot, hot, hot dog? Top dog. Hot dog. Well, he could have sold hot dogs there at the city gate, too. He was the top dog. <laughs> so extortion and payoffs and blackmails and uh, all those kinds of things were common practice for tax collectors, and especially for one who had, you know, over the years risen to such a position as chief tax collector. This tells us that, he, and besides the fact that he was so rich, it mentions he was rich, and in the Greek it means he was extremely rich. So we know without a shadow of a doubt that this man was a bad dude. He, he accumulated a, a lot of wealth and not by the right way. You see, as long as Rome got her appropriate tax monies, she didn't ask any further questions of her tax collectors. So this left the tax collectors with nothing but their own consciences to keep them from taking from the people more than what was required. And um, obviously, most of them would try to sear their consciences because they would take that extra money, and what would they do with it? 
line their own pockets. Do you remember back when a group of publicans, you know, publicans is another word for tax collector. When a group of publicans were under conviction after hearing the preaching of John the Baptist, remember this? They went to him and they said, what should we do? What, what, you know, we want to repent. What, what should we do? And John immediately responded to them. This was in uh, Luke 3.13 by saying, exact no more than that which is appointed you. Just collect for, for, the, for the taxes for Rome only that which is appropriate. Don't collect any more. And that's what he told them. Well, apparently Zacchaeus had silenced his conscience at some point in time because he did exact far more from his own people than what was appointed by Rome. Now, although his name means righteous or clean or pure, um, yet he was not. And though his name does mean righteous, Zacchaeus means righteous. That's what his name literally means in the Hebrew, or clean or pure. That, and that would tell us something, because back in those days, people named their children purposely for what their name meant. So that his, this would tell us he had godly parents. Apparently, he had godly Jewish parents who wanted their son, son to be righteous, to be pure, to be clean. Um, and, but he wasn't. But this is where I give you the answer to the question I asked earlier. What do Zacchaeus and I have in common? And some of the rest of you, Catherine Graham, Catherine Stoltz isn't here today. Who else is the name Catherine? No. <laughs> yes, I'm rich by exhorting from other people. <laughs> no, my name also means Catherine. Did you know that our name means righteous or pure or clean? It does. Does anybody have a middle name of Catherine? Just the two of us today here, I guess. But oh yes, of course, Kathy Gales. Yes, uh, that's what. Our, so if we were boys, we could have been called Zacchaeus, <laughs> because Zacchaeus is the Hebrew male counterpart for Catherine. They both mean the same thing, which um, is interesting. It's a hard name to live up to, <laughs> to be righteous and clean and pure. But of course, in Christ. We are. All right. So although his name meant righteous, uh, he certainly was not. He was not living up to his name, which we have in his own confession in verse 8. He, um, he indeed had come under the curse of sin because he had a depraved heart. And, uh, and he recognized it there in verse 8. So when Christ comes on the the scene, the good news is when Christ comes on the scene, what can he do? He can change a curse into a blessing, can he not? That's what he's doing in Jericho with Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus, and that's what he did with planet Earth. He came to a cursed planet, but he changed the curse. He is the one who can, if we're willing to accept him, he can change a curse into a blessing. Well, I found it also interesting that the only two specific recorded accounts of named publicans coming to faith in the Lord Jesus in the Gospels, and we can be sure that there were other publicans who were saved because the Lord was often dining with prostitutes and publicans and other such sinners. Um, And he gave the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, and it was the publican in that parable who went away justified. Now, we don't know that that's a true story. It could be but the publican in that parable was saved. But there are only two named publicans in the scripture 
who had actual salvation experiences that are given to us, and we've already talked about them. The first one was Levi, whose name was changed to Matthew, which means, anybody know what the name Matthew means? Pardon? Very close. Yes, blessing from God. You can read different things, but blessing from God or gift of God, gift of Jehovah. And Zacchaeus, we already said his name means righteousness or righteous or pure. So you could say, and this is where I get kind of silly, but I have fun sometimes when I'm studying. You could say the Matthew is Zacchaeus. The gift of Jehovah is righteousness. Because it's true. The gift of Jehovah is righteousness. I think it's interesting that one man was a tax collector. This is Levi, Matthew, up in Capernaum of Galilee. Remember his story, which was also given to us in the fullest format by Luke. Again, interesting that Luke is the one who gave us the account of Matthew. Jesus, Matthew was sitting there at his tax collection booth, and along comes Jesus, and he says... Follow me. Two words. Follow me. And you know what Levi does? Gets up, leaves everything behind, and follows the Lord Jesus up there in Capernaum of Galilee. And then he did the same thing Zacchaeus did. He had a a feast at his home, and he invited many other publicans and sinners to that feast. And I'm sure some of them also got saved that day. But anyway, um, then the only other name tax collector we have in the scripture is Zacchaeus. And he's a tax collector down in Jericho of Judea. So you see how balanced the scripture is? Remember last time we had two blind men up in Galilee who called out to Jesus as the son of David. He touched their eyes and they were healed and saved. And then we had the two down in Jericho of Judea. Bartimaeus and his companion who also cried out, first ones to cry out, son of David, he touched their eyes and they were healed and they were saved. Now we have two publicans, only two named publicans, one in Capernaum of Galilee and one down in Jericho of Judea. Isn't that interesting to you? I think it just shows us in one more small way that the scripture is divinely inspired and it is so balanced in all ways. Both men... Levi and Zacchaeus were immediately responsive to the call of Jesus. Both had a feast in their homes, which caused the self-righteous to murmur against the Lord for eating with sinners. And both of these men were changed forever. They were new creatures in Christ. Well, when Jesus entered the city of Jericho with a massive crowd of pilgrims, Passover pilgrims, who, if you can imagine, had been excited before the miracle of healing Bartimaeus and his friend, were now even more stirred up after seeing that miracle just right outside the city before they then entered in. And I can just picture them all shouting and glorifying God, which is what it tells us they were doing in Luke 19, 43, probably with Bartimaeus out at the front, maybe waving a palm branch and, and crying out in his loud voice, Hosannas to the son of David. Well, this crowd coming into the city didn't take it didn't take long for the people you know to hear all this and to come running out of their homes and businesses to see what was going on and i could imagine that word would shoot like lightning throughout that city that the famous jesus was present there in jericho and you can just picture everyone coming out everyone from the entire city coming out to the streets with mixed reasons to see jesus 
there would be, of course, the priests and the Levites and the scribes and the Pharisees who would come out so that they could readily give a full report of everything Jesus did to the Sanhedrin council over in nearby Jerusalem. Do you remember after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead what the Sanhedrin council did? They met together, they were mad, and they issued a decree that if anyone heard about the whereabouts of Jesus, they were immediately to report to them. That was in John 11:57. So they said, if you find out where he is, report to us. So don't you know that some of these guys are going to immediately see what he does in their city and then hit that road to get get over to Jerusalem and report, maybe get a little reward for their tattletaling. I don't know. So there would be uh, plenty of priests and Levites out there on the street, and then there would be many people who would want to, of course, see firsthand this one who had raised a four-day dead man in nearby Bethany just a matter of a few weeks before this. And word was probably already leaking throughout the city that blind Bartimaeus and his companion had just been given their sight outside of the city. And uh, many people would have probably grabbed the hands of their sick loved ones and uh, their handicapped friends and, and anyone who might be possessed of a demon or, or you know, all the different kinds of, of um, handicaps that people would have and they would drag them out to the, to the streets to see Jesus with the hope of maybe being healed. And parents would tra- uh, grab the hands of their, their small children so that they could uh, take them out and maybe receive a blessing from this one who was so powerful and popular. Others probably just wanted to come out to see him out of curiosity. And uh, many in the crowd would just come out because everyone else was doing it, you know, peer pressure. And so they would want to just come out and see what the fuss was all about. And then hopefully, we would hope that there would be those who would come out of their homes and crowd into the Jericho streets to see Jesus because like Bartimaeus, they had been able to put two and two together and in their heart, souls, mind, and strength had figured out that this one named Jesus just had to be their long-awaited Messiah King. But why did little Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector of the city, a man who was despised by his own people, a man who was considered a traitor, a man who was excluded from both the Jewish social and religious life of his culture because a tax collector was de-synagogued. And if you were a Jew and you were de-synagogued, you had no religious life in the community and no social life in the community. Why did he come out to see Jesus? Luke says in verse 3, and he sought to see Jesus who he was. And I want to talk about that statement for a minute, and I want to do what I often do. I want to take a little bit of poetic license here and a little bit of a sanctified imagination to put together a possible scenario for us. First of all, I believe we can very safely say that Zacchaeus was not ignorant about Jesus. It wasn't like, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? I need to find out who this man is. Sitting there at his tax collection station at the city gate, probably for the many years it would have taken him to become chief tax collector, 
He was likely one of the first ones in the city of Jericho to have heard reports about Jesus from the many travelers to the city who talked as they passed by his booth. He would have heard um, the talk from three and a half years ago, probably um, from those who said, do you know this man came suddenly to the temple and he cleansed it with a a cord of whips and who in the world does he think he is? But it was something, you should have seen it. And then I'm sure, you know, as the years passed by, he started hearing about all the amazing works and words that this one had done. He'd heard about Jesus many, many times. He would have heard probably every pro and every con conceivable about this man named Jesus, this one from Galilee. Now, I also think that it would be very safe for us to state that Zacchaeus had to be a very lonely man. He was Jewish, and yet no respectable Jew would have anything to do with him. He had been desynagogued. He worked for Rome, and Rome was hated by the Jewish people. But all the Roman soldiers who, would dw- who dwelled in the military garrison there in Jericho, they'd have no interest in socializing, rubbing shoulders with a greedy little Jewish publican who was merely one of their puppets. They'd have no interest in socializing with him. The only friend, really, that, that uh, Zacchaeus seemed to have was his own wealth, his own riches. And yet he had probably found out by that time that riches... Do not satisfy the longing of the heart, do they? Perhaps down in his soul, Zacchaeus felt the pain and he felt the guilt of having let down his parents by not living up to the name that they had given to him. Maybe he regretted the lifestyle that he had chosen when he was younger and had thought that having wealth would increase his stature in the eyes of others who had always looked down on him. Perhaps as a child and a teenager, he had been laughed at for being so short. You know how cruel kids can be sometimes and mock and laugh in grammar school at one another for, you know, you're so short or your ears don't lay flat and all the awful things that they can, your nose is too big and blah, blah, blah. So he had probably been laughed at by his friends for being so short. And so maybe he thought by having wealth, they would look up to him. But it hadn't worked. It hadn't worked at all. Having wealth had not solved his problems. Even though he had everything physically that he could buy, he was viewed as being even smaller in the eyes of the people. Instead of ridiculing him for being short, they now whispered behind his back. They wouldn't speak to his face because he might raise their taxes. But he knew they were whispering behind his back about him, you know, uh, uh, probably mocking him for his name. Oh, look, there goes Mr. Righteous. Yeah, right. He's not righteous at all. Despising him. You know, he knew by the looks on their faces or the way they'd turn away from him when he walked by that they despised him, that, that they uh, hated him. They, they had outcasted him. Maybe, maybe he wished that he could just somehow go back in time and do things differently. Start all over again. Have a fresh page. Have you ever felt like that? Just start all over again and this time not sell himself out to mammon. Have friends this time around instead of having a fancy house and expensive robes and a beautiful chariot. 
but there was no way he knew of to uh, turn back. Maybe, like the publican in the Lord's parable of the publican and the Pharisee, maybe Zacchaeus had even traveled to Jerusalem to hide himself in the corner of the outer court of the temple to pray to God to help him, despite the the, uh, scornful and uh, self-righteous looks of the Levites and the priests that were also in the temple looking at him and looking down their nose at him. Maybe he had cried out, Lord, help me. I don't know how to get out of my situation. But in his efforts, his, his own self-efforts, he knew of no way to find release from his sin and a way to have a new life. So what brought Zacchaeus out to the streets to see Je- Jesus that day in Jericho? Perhaps more than anything, it was curiosity. But it was probably curiosity slightly mingled with a smidgen of hope. After all, this was a man, the crowds said, no matter who passed him by and was talking about Jesus, he had been able to surmise that this man was like no other man that he had ever heard of. All the crowds said, this one is different. He obviously had great power, such power that he could give sight to the blind. He could give a voice to the mute. He could give hearing to the deaf and cleansing to the leper and even raise the dead. He had immense power. But Zacchaeus didn't need any of those miracles, did he? He didn't need any of those miracles. And he had never heard that this one named Jesus had made a short man tall. Although if you think about it spiritually, he surely had. However, the other reports that Zacchaeus would have heard about this Jesus were very intriguing to him. He was murmured about by Israel's religious rulers because he actually had the audacity to sit down and eat with publicans and prostitutes and other such sinners and social outcasts. I believe it was curiosity with a touch of hope that drew out Zacchaeus to see this Jesus, who he was, who he really was. I know he's Jesus of Nazareth, the one I'm hearing about for three and a half years, but I want to see who he really is. Because reports did indeed indicate that he was very much unlike the calloused, condemning, self-righteous, hypocritical leaders and teachers of Israel who so readily dismissed a man like himself, like Zacchaeus, to eternal damnation without ever even making a single attempt to be merciful to him and show him how to be forgiven. But then how could they? They, they weren't saved themselves. So maybe a small spark of hope lay somewhere in the heart of Zacchaeus that this one named Jesus was different from the other spiritual leaders of Israel for whom I'm sure he had no respect. The false shepherds that are spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 34. Maybe he could change. Maybe this one named Jesus could change the destructive and the lonely course of his life. Zacchaeus might even have thought to himself that if he could just get a glimpse of his face and see the look in his eyes, then he would immediately know if there was indeed something different about him. You know, you can tell a lot by a person's face. You can. I just passed in the driveway uh, a person who has just moved into our little area, 
And he rolled down the window and I said, hi. And I told my husband, I said he had a good face. I could tell by his face that he's a nice person. You can just tell sometimes by a person's face. Uh, And so Zacchaeus just wanted to see his face. He would know if he could look into his eyes, if he had true compassion, he would be able to discern in his face if he had that same hardness of expression toward the commoners and toward the sinners as did the priests and Levites and Pharisees of his city. He would know who this Jesus was by those he hobnobbed with and by those he dined with. I wonder who he would dine with that day. I would tell him a lot. And who he would rub shoulders with. All these things would indicate to him who this Jesus was. And Zacchaeus was therefore very eager to see him. He simply must get a good look at him. See the way he walked? See the way he moved? Did he put his head down and just ignore the people? Or did he look out at the people with love? You know, he would know. But there was a problem. And in the latter part of 19.3, we are told what his problem was. He was too little of stature to see Jesus. Now here is where Zacchaeus is not just like me in that we share the same meaning to our name. Zacchaeus here is really like every one of us (laughs) because as Dr. Harry Ironside said, he was a come shorter. I love that term. He was a come shorter. You know, it doesn't matter how tall or short we are. It doesn't matter our physical height. Whether you're tall like Terry or short like, uh, who is short here? Are you short? Francis Baker. There you go. (laughs) It doesn't matter what our physical height might be. We are all come shorters because we are all sinners and we all come short of the glory of God. But he had another obstruction. Another hindrance that did its best to keep Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus. And wouldn't you know it, it was the same hindrance we have today. What was his hindrance? The press. The press. If there is anything out there trying to keep people from seeing Jesus, it's the press. The media. I'm talking about the media. And of course, the crowds. Most of the crowd would keep people from seeing Jesus. But the press is doing a great job in that too. It says, and he sought to see Jesus who he was and could not for the press. (laughs) There were... (laughs) You got it? You finally got it. Okay, there were so many people crowding the way along where Jesus was walking that Zacchaeus simply too little. He couldn't see over the crowds. And we can be sure that the crowd did their best purposely to prevent Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus. You know, he was as well known as the city mayor. Everybody knew the chief tax collector of Jericho. He was there at the city gate. He'd been there for years. Everyone in town knew Zacchaeus. So when they saw him trying to get through the crowd, what do you think they did? pressed closer together (laughs) they would say look they'd whisper to one another again they wouldn't want him to hear because he might raise their taxes but they'd whisper to each other hey looky here what have we got here mr righteous small fry he look how frantic he is you can tell i was one of those mean children in his grammar school no oh 
he's trying, he's frantic. He's made us frantic all these years about raising our taxes. And look, he's frantic. He wants to see. Whatever you do, whatever you do, don't let him get past you. Pressing closer together. So what we have here is just as we had in the case of Bartimaeus, it was the crowd that's trying to hinder Zacchaeus from trying to get to Jesus. Wasn't it the crowd that tried to hinder Bartimaeus? You know, when he's shouting, Son of David, have mercy on me, and they, Hush up, man, be quiet. They would have prevented him from getting to Jesus, and here again it's the crowd. Don't listen to the crowd out there. Crowd is very seldom right. Remember that. Truth is very narrow. But anyway, as was also true with uh, Bartimaeus, Zacchaeus was not about to be stopped. He was a persistent little fellow. He would overcome the obstacles of his deficiency, his size and his and the crowd. <laughs> and he would do so, as I said, not by crying out, but by climbing up. And what did he climb, everybody? A sycamore tree. It was not the kind of sycamore trees we have here in this country, but it was a big, leafy, kind of a fig tree, sycamore tree. Big, huge leaves, easy to climb. Only time the sycamore tree is mentioned in the New Testament. There's another trivia thing. But I imagine that he wanted to get up there because it did have such big leaves and he could hide and look down in, into the face of Jesus to see what he looked like and he could find out who he was. Well, I do believe that it is correct to say that more than any other sin, it is pride that keeps people from trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you agree? Pride is the chief sin. And it is at this point in the chief tax collector's life that he determined to cast away his pride because he did what no grown, dignified man noble man, wealthy man in Eastern culture of his day would do. And what was that? He ran. Who? <laughs> he climbed in. Ran. He ran in public. And that was just a big no-no. Who else had run just in the previous chapter? I think it was. Yeah. But who? what other sinner just ran? We had the prodigal son's father, yes. That was God running out to meet the sinner. But the rich young ruler, remember, he ran a tree up ahead. And so what he would have to do is hoist his, his long robes past up his ankles and run down the street like a little boy chasing after a parade. And then hoisting his skirts up even higher, he had to scramble up the tree and find a limb on which to perch so that he could get a good look into the face of Jesus. And to do all this in broad daylight, with literally hundreds, maybe thousands of people looking, and most likely laughing, was indeed an indication that Zacchaeus did not care right now about pride and dignity. Bartimaeus, remember, he didn't care what the people thought of him, even though he was screaming and, and loudly obnoxious to try to get Jesus' attention. And here we see the same thing with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was desperate. He had obviously come to the place in his life where he realized that he had no hope for joy, no hope for real peace, unless it was somehow or another tied in with this man passing his way, this very incredible na man named Jesus who he had heard so much about. 
He just had to see him with his own two eyes, no matter what he had to do to make that possible. And this is good. In the spiritual realm of things, is this not good? That he didn't care what people thought, he didn't care about peer pressure, and he was persistent, and he put aside his pride? Yes, this is good. It's um, an example here of what the Lord had just said to his disciples in the previous... No, no. Yeah, the previous chapter in Luke eighteen seventeen, when the Lord had said, Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. What we have in the case of Zacchaeus is a grown man acting like a little child. In boy-like curiosity, he wanted something so badly that he forgot all about any sense of pride. And in the spiritual realm of things, that is very good. In fact, in his pursuit to see Christ, he was doing the very best thing he had ever, ever done in his entire life. This was the best decision he had ever made, to run ahead and climb up into that sycamore tree to see Jesus. Well, the goal was to get a good look at Jesus as he passed by on the road below, but Zacchaeus got a whole lot more than just a good look at Jesus. He was going to receive his call to eternal life from the eternal one himself. Now, from his heightened perspective, up in that sycamore tree, Zacchaeus could very carefully scrutinize the band of people passing below him. He would see the faces of two very ragged-looking beggars, perhaps at the forefront of this parade. And he could have sworn that they were the same two blind men who always sat right outside the city gates, except that now they could obviously see. And they were running here and running there and shouting and waving and so happy, and they were whispering to people something, and then those people's faces were just amazed. And then he could also see from his lofty position up there Lots of weary-looking Galileans who nonetheless were also very excited. And he would have seen the faces of men who he knew had to be the Lord's disciples because they were all around him, and they um, looked very much like they were truly enjoying all this attention. But then, but then, Zacchaeus's focus shot to one very special face. Not that there was anything in the features of that particular face that stood out from the other faces of Jewish men, but the countenance of the man himself was just so serene and so otherworldly. And there was just a royal dignity about that face and a compassion that just emanated from his eyes and such a humility in the way that he walked and in the way that he looked at people and then suddenly time stood still and all the rest of the faces in that crowd blurred as the eyes of this very one he was looking at turned so purposely upward and straight into his own as though he had known he was there all along. The eyes of the light of the world himself looked straight into Zacchaeus' eyes. 
Can you imagine how Zacchaeus's heart must have leapt inside of him? He just looked straight at him. Did he know that he was going to be up there in that sycamore tree all along since before the foundation of the earth? Of course. Why did he even go to Jericho in the first place instead of going through Samaria? Because he had a divine appointment with this man. And as long as he would live, I am sure, because I know where I was and what happened and everything about the moment Jesus looked into my eyes and called me to himself, as long as Zacchaeus would ever live, he would never, ever forget the the moment when those piercing, penetrating eyes shined their light straight at him, while at the very same time, the voice of his good shepherd spoke his name. Zacchaeus. Now, they had never met before. We know that this is the one and only recorded time that Jesus had ever been to Jericho. And remember what it had said back in verse 2? Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, who he was. These things tell us that they had never previously met. And yet, Jesus knew exactly who Zacchaeus was. Now, Zacchaeus had wanted to know who Jesus was, but Jesus knew who Zacchaeus was. Who was he? He was one of his strayed little sheep. And the good shepherd knows his sheep. He even knows them by their, by their name. You see, this poor little confused sheep had even gotten himself up into a tree. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never heard of a sheep getting up into a tree, have you? <laughs> but we are a peculiar people. And we can get ourselves into all kinds of precarious positions. And Zacchaeus had managed to do that. So Jesus looks up at him and he says, Zacchaeus, what are you doing up there? (laughs) Make haste and come down. Because I must, I must abide in your house today. You see, as omnisciently as the Lord knew Zacchaeus' name, he also knew that Zacchaeus would obey him. Because... He can see the heart. He knew his command would be obeyed. He knew Zacchaeus was ripe for the picking. The Lord himself, you see, had sovereignly orchestrated the circumstances of Zacchaeus' life, including his short stature for this very moment. Did you hear that? You know, I look back on my life and everything wasn't always pleasant. But I can now give thanks for everything and in everything because I see he orchestrated all the events of my life, including the family I was born into, the way I look, everything about me so that I would get to that point where he would call me and I would answer. So even his short stature, all this was, if he hadn't been short, he wouldn't been in the tree when Jesus looked up, right? God is sovereignly orchestrating everything in our lives. He is working all things out together for his good and our glory. He said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and get down from there. Time is urgent. Yeah, no, we don't want the glory. We'll give the glory to him. His good and his glory. (laughs) And we'll get some good out of that too, fortunately. But he says, get down. Time is urgent. Now is the accepted day. Today is the day of salvation. Don't delay, Zacchaeus. I'm on a divine time schedule myself. I need to be in Jerusalem at a certain hour, so you better not waste any time. Come down because I have a divine appointment with you. I must abide at thy house today. 
And we've learned what happens when the Lord says must, haven't we? (laughs) It will take place. Now you talk about grace. My goodness, this encounter was all about grace from beginning to end because there was no merit whatsoever, no righteousness in the man named righteousness at all, nothing that would merit him worthy of Christ's salvation. And that is exactly the way it is for all of us. We are all sinners worthy of condemnation. And it is grace from first to last that results in our salvation. However, on the human side of things, we do have to say that Zacchaeus was living up to the light that was put in him. And that the Holy Spirit was working on his heart and drawing him to the Lord. But it was the Lord who went to Jericho, it was the Lord who called him. It always begins with who? The Lord. Well, because the sheep know the voice of their good shepherd and do indeed respond to it, Zacchaeus wasted no time in obedience. Just as Bartimaeus, another one of the Lord's sheep, had immediately remembered when he cast aside his garment, didn't want anything in the way, and then he sprung up so he could answer the call of Jesus, so too did Zacchaeus immediately obey. It says he made haste and he came down from his sycamore tree. Again, he was like a very eager little child. He, he may even have jumped down from his perch in that tree. But he came down. And spiritually speaking, this means also that there was any remnant of pride in him left. He put that aside. He came down. He came down in humility. He humbled himself to obey without any reservation this one named Jesus. And he was like a little child in his open joy. Luke tells us that he received him joyfully. How marvelous, how marvelous it is that really, if you think about it, right before we go into the sadness of the Passion Week, upon which we are about to enter, right before that, we have these two great accounts of salvation experiences. One of blind Bartimaeus and one of chief tax collector Zacchaeus. You know, men who after their brief encounters with the Lord are so overwhelmingly full of joy that we get this good news right before we go into the Passion Week. Because actually the Passion Week is all about making many, many people like Zacchaeus and Bartimaeus joyful. You know, our cups overflowing. So yes, Zacchaeus was delighted to have Jesus as a guest in his home. Imagine that. Nobody else would have invited, uh, he could have invited to eat with him. He'd probably ask many people to come eat with him and no one would because no one would have anything to do with a synagogue outcast. But Jesus was actually inviting himself to his home. And this is the only recorded time in the Lord's life when he ever invited himself into a home. And it was the home of a notorious sinner who robbed his own people and got wealthy at their expense. You know, he could have stayed at the mayor's home. He could have stayed at the balsam plantation owner's home. He could have stayed at the chief priest's home. But none of those people invited him, had they? He could have maybe even found some godly residence there, kind of like Martha and Mary, and stayed with them. But he said that it was a must that he abide in the home of one of the worst sinners in Jericho. And so this tells us that just like Revelation 3.20, Jesus stood at the door of Zacchaeus's heart and knocked. And what happened? Zacchaeus heard his voice and joyfully opened the door and invited him in. And Jesus did come in and sup with him. 
And they obviously had a very wonderful time of fellowship because Zacchaeus emerged from that time of fellowship with Jesus as a new creature in Christ, as his own confession in verse 8 tells us, and also as the Lord's confession tells us in verses in verse 9. But before we get to, to what went on in the home, I want to just real quickly, I know we're over time, tell you what was going on while they're in the home, what is going on outside the home. Well, verse 7 tells us something that we already know. No success in the Lord's work will make Satan happy. And he will always voice his opposition through his willing human vessels. Sure enough, as we have seen on very many other occasions, there were those who were murmuring outside over the fact that Jesus had gone to be a guest, even a self-invited guest, with the man who was the chief tax collector, a terrible sinner, a known sinner. Now, as I said, I didn't hear any of them inviting him to eat with them. But um, but anyway, they're, they're out there um, mumbling and grumbling about the fact that he was eating with, uh, with Zacchaeus. And this was the same complaint we've heard before. Do you remember back in Luke 15 when the Pharisees and scribes actually said, uh, this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them? And they were mumbling, and that was what launched him into giving the three famous parables of Luke 15. Remember those three parables? The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost lad, or the parable, we call it, of the prodigal son, which taught all of those parables taught how very opposite is the attitude of God towards sinners than the attitude of the self-righteous false shepherds of Israel. Well, his critics, who, by the way, would have quickly sent word over to the Sanhedrin council in Jerusalem about this, I'm sure one of them or two of them got on the road immediately to go tell the Sanhedrin, you know, he's eating with Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. They would claim that this was corruption on the part of Jesus. This would prove that he could not possibly be the Messiah. But it was nothing of the sort. Sinners did not transmit their evil on him. Just as touching a leper. When he touched a leper, he didn't communicate disease. He communicated his purity to the leper. His righteousness was transmitted to those he he ate with or (laughs) fellowshiped with. He was purity personified and nothing could defile him. But he had power to purify the defiled, which is why he went to Zacchaeus' house in the first place. He went there to make Zacchaeus truly Zacchaeus, to make him truly clean, to make him truly righteous and pure. If the critics, who had no love and not even pity for such men as Bartimaeus and especially Zacchaeus, if they had had their way, You know what they would have done? They would have kept themselves, and this is what they were doing, they would have kept themselves completely separate from such people all of their lives and just let them die and go to eternal hell. They did absolutely nothing to try to save them. And that is, of course, really because they were not saved themselves, but they thought they were. Their greatest hope, think about this, the greatest hope of the critics here would be that such men as Bart and Zach 
would have more compassion on them than they had ever had and that they one day would share the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ with them. That was their biggest hope, that Bart and Zach would one day turn around and share the gospel message with them and they could be saved. But at this point in time, they stood outside the chief tax collector's house with their holier-than-thou attitude and murmured against the one who had come to give his life a ransom for many and to seek and to save that which was lost. Well, we have no written record of what went on inside the house, but we have evidence that a great change took place in Zacchaeus based on his words when he and the Lord emerged from that house. For one thing, notice this. Finally, Zacchaeus was still. It says in verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood. I like that. You know what that tells me? He had lost his restlessness. For the first time in this entire account about him, we are told he stood. You know, he had either been running or trying to press his way through the crowd or he had been climbing up a sycamore tree, or he had been hastening down a sycamore tree and hastening to his house in order to prepare everything for a meal. And here now we find that when he comes out of his house with Jesus, he is standing upright and he is still. He has found the peace that he had longed to have. And the only place to find the peace of God is from the God of peace. Right? Second, he was reverential. What did he call Jesus? Lord. And third, he was compassionate and generous. A man who had previously not hesitated to take what he could from people was now going to give half of what he owned to the poor. What a contrast he is. I won't get into this. I think you do it in your homework. But what a contrast with a rich young ruler. But here, Zacchaeus is... All right, he voluntarily voluntarily says, I will give half of what I own to the poor. And then he's honest. Uh, He goes on to admit that he has defrauded people and promises to restore them fourfold. Now, this is, again, a voluntary thing where he is placing himself under the severest judgment of the Mosaic law. He did not have to do this because the Mosaic law said that if you voluntarily confessed your sin, all you had to do if you had defrauded somebody was pay them back what you defrauded them and add one-fifth to that. So that, if he was coming under the law, that's all he would have to do. That means if he, if he took $100 from somebody, he'd have to pay them back the $100 plus one-fifth, which would be $120. $120. But here he is saying, whoever I have defrauded, and just think of all the people he had defrauded over the years. You know, he's chief. That means he's been a tax collector a long time to rise to that position. He's promising everyone he defrauded fourfold. That means if he defrauded them $100, he was going to pay them back fourfold, which means he, $400? $400. $400. So by the time he would give half of his wealth away and then fourfold pay back everybody he had defrauded, guess what? He'd be broke. <laughs> he would not have probably anything left. What this tells us, I mean, nobody could deny that his meeting with Jesus in that house had made a life-changing impact on him. Now, he was still short. 
He hadn't, he hadn't grown any in stature, but me, oh my, he had suddenly become a spiritual giant in the eyes of the Lord. And uh, again, I wanted to comment on his comparison with uh, the rich wrong ruler, but I won't do all that. Um, let me just go on. Okay, now we also know that he was a new creature in Christ from the Lord's own confession down in verses 9 and 10 when the Lord said, This day is salvation. Come to this house for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. And there the Lord isn't speaking about his blood relationship. He's talking about the fact that he, Zacchaeus, is now a true spiritual son of Abraham. And then the Lord, of course, says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost was lost that's what he was all about was saving people like Zacchaeus it was the greatest day in the life of Zacchaeus because no day is greater than the day of salvation would you agree in all of eternity it's even greater than the day you were physically born because if you're not born again your physical birth becomes a curse because you go into eternity alive but spiritually dead So this was the greatest day in the life of Zacchaeus. And now the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. (laughs) Clement of Alexandria, who is known to be a accurate, not, not inspired, but an accurate Christian historian, tells us that this very same Zacchaeus, former chief tax collector of the city of Jericho, became a companion, a traveling companion, with Peter and was eventually assigned to the leadership role of the church at Caesarea. Yay, little Zacchaeus. Isn't it interesting? In in heaven, we're going to find out all the rest of the stories of so many of these people, but I just found that fascinating. God can really, really, really change a life, can't he? All right, I did go over time, and I'm sorry. Let's, it's all Terry's fault. <laughs> Let's pray. Well, I want to ask you, what about you? What, what Christ did for Zacchaeus, he can do for any other person who is willing to place their faith in him. So what about you? It has to be more than just a head type of faith, as we've discussed so many times. It has to be a heart faith because it is the door to our hearts upon which he knocks and seeks entrance. We know he wants to have a personal relationship with each one of us here in this room, a personal relationship that is real. He wants to be permitted to sup with you in intimate fellowship. He wants to talk about your eternal soul, and and he wants complete control of your will and your life. He wants your faith to be so real that your whole perspective on life And your attitude toward life changes. He wants your faith to be so genuine that you are compelled to turn from former sins and and truly begin to live for him. And he wants our faith to be verbalized to others. And he wants it to be evidenced by the things that we do for him. Not so as to earn something, but because we just love him so much that we truly desire to please him with a life of, of holiness and a life of fruitfulness. So what about it? Has he passed through each of our homes yet? Has he knocked upon your heart's door? And most importantly, have you really, really asked him in? Lord, I pray if there's one here who has not opened the door,
to the knock of Jesus that she would do so today. And we will give you all the praise and glory for you alone deserve it. Thank you again for this opportunity to study your word, get to know you better. For we pray in your name. Amen.